0: Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I'm joined, as always, remotely by co-host Joe Wolfon. Hey, man. How's it going?
1: Uh, Should we throw out all the the usual, uh, you know, modifiers, like going fine, all things considered? Um, I don't know, man. I'm I'm slogging through. Like, I feel like everybody else kind of is. And it's, uh, you know, the collision of winter blues and pandemic blues are just... uh, it's been tough to to be perfectly honest, but for me personally, things could definitely be worse. So, so I'm pushing through. How about you?
0: Not bad. I mean, I, I did want to mention off the top. It's been a sad, you know, 24 yeah. hours um, for the NBA community. Uh, Saku Smith, who you know, I'm assuming if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably just like huge NBA fan and hoops head, and probably into stats and all that kind of nerdy right. stuff and talking ball. And if that's the case, the most likely you have heard of. And I've probably read his work before, probably seen him on NBA TV. So Koo Smith was, uh, you know, he was a staple of NBA media these days. And, and and really for the last number of years, over a decade now, I'm not going to pretend I knew him or anything like that, but I, I'd met him a couple times uh, around arenas. The only, you know, thing I can say about him is that he was easily one of the friendliest people I had ever met among NBA media people. And just look at the outpouring of memories and love that people have shared On social media, I mean, I know everyone says some stuff like this after you lose someone that no one can say a bad word about him. But if you just look at the tributes coming in from people across basketball media, young, old, whoever, about how good of a guy Suku was and, you know, generous and thoughtful he was with his time for other people in the industry as well. He was a really good mentor for a lot of young people in the industry. He went out of his way to be a guy that young people in this industry could talk to. And he was really good at what he did as well. So, uh, really, really, really sad to hear that he actually, you know, lost a battle with COVID. He's only 48 years old, married with three kids. So, uh, yeah, I just obviously wanted to give Sekou a shout out to start the pod and, um, to express, our condolences for his wife and his children his family and and really anyone who knew him and loved him
1: like you said the the kind of outpouring of love and grief is i think that tells you all you need to know about the kind of person that he was and the number of people that he touched and i like you didn't know him personally but he was obviously a, a mainstay of just the nba media sphere and you know i remember like in high school and university reading his columns and like you'd see him on NBA TV like he was just a, a staple I think as as a personality as a writer um around NBA media and I think it's just one of those things where it hits close to home and and I will say like I've been very fortunate to not know anybody particularly close to me who has died of covid and I think like that's the thing. Like, we're at this point where if if that is the case for you, then you are fortunate. Like, this, this virus has ravaged so many families and communities, and it's just, I still don't know if there's been enough of a reckoning with that um, and how many lives it's claimed. And I think it's, you know, something that, whether you knew him personally or not, like, something like this does sort of bring it, close to home for a community that we're part of and yeah. i think it's just a reminder again of how dangerous and scary this is of how seriously to take it and uh another reason to just say like hope everybody is being safe and responsible and and checking in on their loved ones
0: yeah and then you know just the you know siku Um, was lost on the one-year anniversary of Kobe Bryant dying. And uh, a lot of people have been sharing memories and whatnot uh, a year after. I mean, we're recording this a day after the one-year anniversary. Anything, you know, you have any thoughts on on a year without Kobe?
1: Not really. I mean, it's... I think all the stuff I felt like I needed to say about it, we said and, and talked about a year ago. Uh, I think it's, you know, on the one hand, you say, I can't believe that was a year ago, uh, because it still feels so close and so recent. And I know there's something we talked about kind of mid pandemic too, but the way that time is moving (laughs) these days, like, it's simultaneously moving very slowly, and feels like we're also like suspended in time in a weird way. So it feels like it's been an extremely long year and obviously the world has changed so much, but also like so little has happened that uh, it, it feels almost like no time has passed. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I've obviously like it being the anniversary made me think back to that day and just the shock of it, um, the, the number of tributes that came pouring in, uh, reading all the different Perspectives, hearing the way the NBA players talked about him and how he'd influenced them, uh, it was um, it brought all that flooding back. And of course, you know, a lot of people wrote addendums and and pieces on the one year anniversary to kind of take stock of of the year without him. And yeah, I mean, I think I like most other people who care deeply about the NBA, sort of immersed myself in that and just sort of was reminded of the fact that he's gone and has been gone this entire time uh, because there's there's been so much else that's happened. uh, I think it's been easy to lose sight of that.
0: Well said. I think it really hit home how time has simultaneously flown by and yet felt like nothing has happened when you wake up and realize, holy shit, it's been a full year since Kobe's died. Um, uh, And yeah, I mean, it's still very strange to uh, think of... Kobe not not been with us and you know not even I mean obviously we're coming at it from a different vantage point as you know like NBA media people and NBA fans and it's weird to like have this NBA world where Kobe doesn't exist anymore but uh, yeah obviously for you know his family and friends it's a different kind of uphill challenge all right with that I think we can transition to talking about the game today and uh, where it's at and where the season is at through About a month, actually over a month. We are more than a month into the season. But I guess we'll bounce around the league today. There's not like one specific theme or team we're going to talk about. There's a few teams, maybe like a handful of things we're going to talk about. Why don't we start it off with a team I know you want to talk about, and I'm always game to talk about, and that's the Milwaukee Bucks.
1: I kind of want to kick it back to you because I'm curious. You've (laughs) obviously been a Bucks skeptic for the last couple of years, so I'm – Curious actually, what your take has been on that team this year, whether you see anything different from them that's given you more optimism, less optimism about their prospects going forward. What do you think of the Bucks this year?:
0: I think they are a very, very good team led by a guy who, while his numbers have you know decreased slightly, they're still prolific, and they're a very good team led by a guy who's going to end up in the MVP conversation at least by the end of the year. I like their makeup better with Drew Holiday. They should be a slightly better playoff team, if nothing else, even if they take a short term hit during the regular season. If I'm not mistaken, their offense currently, obviously still a small sample size, but it might be the most efficient ever. But their defense has taken a step back. They're still killing teams like they have been in, in previous years. Their point differentials over plus nine, but... I have a lot of the same doubts I've always had about this team. I know we're going to talk about the way their offense has changed. You know, I've I've watched and read all about, you know, them having a guy in the dunker spot and how that's changed their offense and how it's actually limited Giannis from getting to the rim, but they're also starting, you know, they're having him initiate offense from the elbows a little bit more, or maybe the corners. So, taking all that into stock, I realize they're not the exact same team they've been the last couple of years, but a lot of the same issues still exist. And I kind of assume that would be the case going into the season. Giannis is a his free throw shooting is worse than it's ever been. It's fifty eight point five percent now. The threes are whatever. Like it's basically the same as it was last year. Thirty percent or just under five three point attempts per game. But the offense being created around that guy in crunch time is still a problem. You still see Chris Middleton and sometimes Drew Holiday having to carry that offense in crunch time because it's hard to have. Giannis carried in those moments given his deficiencies on that end of the court despite his numbers and i still don't think that you are even coming close to winning a championship if you need chris middleton or and or drew holiday to be your go-to guys and crush them and look we've been over this so many times over the years like that's not even hate on chris middleton i do I, I really like chris middleton he's a great player he's an all-star like i averaged 20 plus on almost 50 40 90 last year but you're not winning a championship if he's your closer. I'm sorry. You're just not. And guess what, Bucks fans? He's still your closer, okay? And even if Drew Holiday's your closer, you're still not winning a championship. They're different. Maybe they're a little better built for the playoffs, but not enough. The same issues are still there. It's still going to prove to be their Achilles heel. What do you think?
1: I think Middleton is incredible, honestly. Is. And, and, and I think he very well could be their closer and they could have a lot of success doing it. Like he has become one of the absolute best three level scorers in the league and the variety of ways that he can score, uh, you know, whether it's catch and shoot threes, pull up threes, like pull up in the mid range. He's been unbelievable. He can score out of the post. I think, you know, I don't see any reason given how efficient he's been as a shooter and all around scorer. I mean, he is on a 50, 40, 90 track again. And I think, it's, it's to me a question of figuring out how to utilize Giannis while deploying that kind of late game offense when the ball is probably going to be in Middleton's hands. And I don't think that means that like Giannis isn't going to be involved. It's more just involving him in different ways. And that means, you know, you're not having him initiate from the top of the key and just hurl himself headlong into a wall of defenders. But You know, they are using him more in the post this season. They're using him, I think, a little bit more as a screener, still not as much as I would like. And I thought, especially in that game against the Nets, like they finally started going to that, you know, Middleton Giannis pick and roll late in the game and generally just using Giannis as a screener in ball screen actions in the second half of that game. I thought it took too long for them to make that adjustment, Um, especially given the way that the Nets were playing him with, like they stuck DeAndre Jordan on him and, and DeAndre is like, laying way back and for the first half of that game there were still so many times when they would just have Giannis like try and drive the ball right at DeAndre and it's like okay like you know DeAndre is not a great defender at this point in his career but he's huge and he's strong and if he's sitting back at the rim like he's going to be able to absorb that drive so they so they started going to some dribble handoffs and they were running them with with Bryn Forbes a lot which again it's like you know Bryn Forbes is fine but like why aren't you running those dribble handoffs for Middleton Uh, And and they finally got to like the Middleton Giannis pick and roll late in the game. And it was really effective. But um, it's, I guess, a a lack of proactivity there that still maybe worries me a bit. But I think Middleton's been unbelievable. And I don't necessarily see it as like, no, you're doomed if Chris Middleton's your closer. Like,
0: okay, I guess depends on what your definition of doomed is. Do you think they can win a championship? If Chris yeah, no, come.
1: I do. I, I think they can for sure. Like, I don't. I wouldn't pick them to win necessarily. Like, I think that to me, right now, the Clippers and Lakers are kind of head and shoulders above the rest of the league. And I think the Nets by the end of the season have a decent chance of joining that group. But, but I certainly think the Bucks could be in that mix. And like, look, I, I certainly wouldn't have picked the Heat to come within two wins of a championship <laughs> last year. And I might have. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but. Do, do you like zooming out big picture? Do you not still think that that was like a pretty surprising oh, yeah, thing yeah, course, to have happened? Of
0: course. Of course. Yeah.
1: Like, I think that we tend to, especially in hindsight, kind of narrow things down where like if a team didn't do something, then we tend to say, well, they never could have. And I think that's just so limiting, you know, like but I
0: actually did have the heat <laughs> beating the Bucks. No, I know you potentially did. Potentially going to the final. But yeah, I, I did not have them taking two games off the Lakers with without Bam Adebayo or Goran Dragic. So
1: I, I think like they have some stuff to figure out, but I do think that the ability is there. I do think Holiday makes them better built for the playoffs. And just generally, I think Holiday has been an amazing fit there. Um, I think his ball handling's really made a difference for their half court offense. I think they get jammed up less just because of his ability to create something out of nothing a lot of the time. Um, and he's not even really playing on the ball all that much, but like he's been effective playing off of the ball. I think he's done a really good job making those 45 cuts from the wing when the bucks are running pick and roll on the other side of the floor. Uh, he's obviously shot the ball incredibly well, which has helped for him as an off ball player. Um, and, and his defense has obviously been spectacular. Uh, I, I thought again, in that Nets game, he did a really, really good job on James Harden. Um, the Bucks have been switching a little bit more, even though I think they're still one of the most switch averse teams in the league. But holiday was, he basically came out and said he thought that they should be switching more. And since he said that, uh, I think we've seen them do it, especially with like small, small pick and rolls or switching those more often. Um, so I'm loving holiday in Milwaukee. I think Middleton has been great. I think the bench hasn't quite been as bad as I thought it would be. Like Portis has actually been fairly solid. Um, he's still clearly a minus defender, but less of a disaster than he's been in the past. Uh, he's doing a better job, I think, just like with his positioning and staying on his feet. So I, I definitely think that they, like they're in that mix to me. You know, they're, I think there are probably four teams that I would designate as these are like the real championship contenders. And I think in the East, it's it's Milwaukee and Brooklyn.
0: Yeah, I'd, I'd probably agree with that. But I do, I still think that, especially given the way BAM is playing right now, that if Miami can ever this season get to a point where they've got everyone healthy and rolling at the same time, like get Jimmy Butler back, get Tyler Hero back, get something from Avery Bradley, I still think they'll have something to say about it. I I don't think they can beat Brooklyn, but I still think they can beat Milwaukee. Yeah, of course you think that. (laughs) I do. I
1: I mean, look, I think between... Obviously Miami, I think, is better than they've shown. I think Toronto is way better than they've shown. Philly has obviously looked great. I still have some concerns about Philly, but
0: really should trade Ben Simmons for Bradley Beal. Uh,
1: okay. Well, that's going to be another topic for another podcast. Uh, I I have a lot of thoughts on Ben Simmons, um, both this season and in general, um, and some of which we hit on uh, yeah. last episode with Siri, but um, but we'll save that. We'll save the Philly talk because I, I have a lot of thoughts on them as well. But I, I think. Look, there, there are still a bunch of teams in the East that I think could pose significant challenges for the two teams that I consider to be the best in the conference. Philly's definitely one of them. I've liked Indiana, obviously, this season. I still have concerns about them as a playoff team. And obviously, great news, actually, like as far as Karis Lavert goes. I know it's weird to say that. You you even tweeted this, right? Like It's weird to say that a guy got lucky or that it's good news when you hear that yeah, I they, think... they've avoided a, a potential um, serious cancer scare. But... Like, it's great news that he he had the surgery to remove that mass on his kidney and is seemingly going to make a full recovery.
0: Look, I don't want to take away from that. That's, you know, like, not at all what my tweet meant. It's 100%. It's unbelievable great news. You know, if you read about the fact that in most cases with renal cell carcinoma, and because it doesn't produce any symptoms, it's often not found until it's too late and it's spread too far. So yes, of course, the, fa- the fact that he, you know, was diagnosed because of a physical that Needed to be done because of an NBA trade is an unbelievable story, and for sure, like it, it's a fortunate thing that they found it when they did. All I was saying with that tweet is, I I always just find it like a little uncomfortable when people make it sound like this guy's so lucky or it was a blessing or whatever the case. Maybe when like at the end of the day, he's still a twenty six year old that you know technically got diagnosed with cancer. Like that's scary and, and terrifying and sad in its own way. And so it like I don't know, it was just like a little uncomfortable for me to for everyone to be talking about how lucky the guy is and fortunate. And it's like, man, it's you know, it's, it's still not great yeah
1: um, well i mean it's possible to be unlucky and lucky at the same yeah, time. yeah right? that,
0: that, and that's that's exactly the way i view it but uh yeah look i i mean you know i've had my uh, i've gotten my jokes off at the expense of the pacers i like them at going forward a lot more than i did before and i think they've got something going but i still think for this year like they top out as a really kind of pesky first round out i could definitely see them winning a series
1: if they have everybody healthy and that's just been the big bugaboo for them in the playoffs in the last couple of years is, is they haven't been able to get healthy for the playoffs. So if Levert is able to come back and they get TJ Warren back, uh, I, I definitely think that's a team that could win a series and pose a, a pretty significant challenge in a second round series. I think the Celtics are going to have something to say about this when all is said and done. Mm-hmm. Like that's another team that just really hasn't had their full complement of players for much of this season. But like Kemba's looked, I think he looked a bit rusty in his first couple of games back, but he looks like he's starting to get pretty comfortable. And Brown and Tatum are just ridiculous, man. Like the, the Brown leap that Jalen
0: out of his mind.
1: <laughs> the leap that Jalen Brown has taken this season. I mean, he has been quite simply one of the best shooters in the league. You know, both the, as a three point shooter and as a mid range jump shooter. I think he's really refined his playmaking chops. Like his off the dribble game is looking quite smooth. And To have two wings of that caliber, I mean, like, they're obviously not on the level of Kawhi and PG, but, like, I don't think they're that far behind as far as wing duos go. Like, that's probably... Like, they're the number two wing duo in the league, right? Am I, I, like, forgetting
0: about anybody and saying Mm, that? No, I don't think so. I think, given the way Jalen Brown is playing right now, I think that's a very... Yeah. Easy I mean, yeah. I guess if you
1: would consider Harden a wing, then you'd eh, have to take true. the Nets. But, but I just think to have two guys who I think you could now call, like, I don't know if you'd go as far as to call Jalen Brown a playmaking wing, like he's still more of a play finisher than a play creator, but he, he's much further along, you know, toward being a playmaking wing. And obviously Tatum has become like a much improved playmaker over the last couple of years. They're both very gifted scorers, fantastic defenders. Uh, and then... You know, you throw a point guard like Kemba into the mix who can play on or off the ball and like really attack a scrambling defense or just be like a deadly pull up shooter out of the pick and roll. Um, I I still wonder what their lineups are going to look like if they're going to keep, you know, sort of starting Tice and, and Tristan together, but. But I think the Celtics are going to have something to say about it before all is done. So we, we've gotten off track here. But all, all I'm saying is I think there are any number of teams that I could conceivably see winning the East. And, and I definitely think the Bucks are part of that mix. But one of the things I did want to talk about in regards to the Bucs was their sort of offensive shift and the way that they're now prioritizing using uh, the dunker spot as part of their base offensive scheme. Um, and a lot of people pointed that out. Eric Neem... Nem, Neem, I don't know how to pronounce it, um, at The Athletic, who does a really good job covering the Bucs. He wrote a great piece exploring sort of how and why the Bucs incorporated it into their offense. And like, it's not exactly galaxy brain stuff, right? Like a lot of teams make prominent use of the dunker spot. Um, You know, the Sixers come to mind and even the Bucs, like in the last couple of years, they are still a lot of times when they would when they would stick smalls in that spot. Like Pat Connaughton, I think, has spent a lot of time in the dunker over the last couple of years. And it has benefits and it has drawbacks, but it's obviously worked very well for the Bucks this season. They've scored at a ridiculous rate. I think they're number one in the league in offense. They're up around 118 points per hundred. And I think just, it reinforced a feeling that I've long had about Mike Budenholzer, which is that he is really good at the macro stuff. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like he's good at identifying structural solutions to to like big picture issues yeah and like Um,
0: implementing them in training like beginning of the season and like having the team follow those guidelines to a t and i'm not i'm not even trying to troll i'm being serious like he's good at that like you implement that structure at the beginning of the season and your team is that you know like they they follow that plan Yeah. And so, you know, he came into training camp with the idea that that was how they were going to,
1: from the sounds of it, like the the goal was sort of to take pressure off of Giannis in a weird way. And it seems counterintuitive, but there's a certain amount of sense to, okay, it's going to make it harder for teams to build the wall against Giannis, especially in transition when you have somebody darting toward the rim behind the defense, as opposed to, you know, the defense being able or willing to live with the closeout when everyone is fanning out to the three-point line. Uh, It gives Giannis like an easier dump-off pass. It gives defenders uh, more ground to cover on the perimeter when they're showing Giannis extra bodies and they're kind of having to zone up against three-point shooters because those shooters are more spread out now. It's made offensive rebounding a lot easier for the Bucs. They're up to seventh in offensive rebound rate after ranking bottom five last year. So it's clearly been healthy, I think, for their offense on the whole, but it has made Giannis's life actually, I think, a little bit more difficult, especially in the half court. Like his numbers are down, as you mentioned, uh, his dribble drive game has been a lot less effective. He's talked about not feeling entirely comfortable with the new offensive setup or just like still gaining a certain comfort level with it. And I think in part that maybe has to do with guys who are who are just sitting on his pet moves now, like namely the spin move in the Euro. I think they're just waiting for it. Um, but it's also partly the downside of like willingly pulling another defender under the basket. So it's reinforced my feeling about, about Bud and Holter and how he thrives in kind of macro settings. But it also reinforced this other feeling I have about, <laughs> about Bud, which is that he is very attached and, and like maybe too attached to the macro stuff. You know, maybe it could have been okay, we're, we're going to mix in a bunch of sets utilizing the dunker spot. Th- those sets will be part of our package, but it'll be situational. But it had to be, you know, this is what we do now. This is this area along the baseline that we taped off in training camp so that we would really get in the habit of always having someone there. That's now foundational to our offensive identity. You know, we're going to drill these habits into yeah. our guys so we, we never forget to stay true to our principles. Um, and like, you know, that's not entirely fair because I think a lot of teams do similar things to drill their their desired floor balance into their players. Yeah. And and also, like, I found like when the Bucks run pick and rolls with Giannis as the screener, they do often clear out the dunker spot. Like they did that at the tail end of the game against Brooklyn and for parts of their game against the Lakers. But like the base scheme is the base scheme. So I'm thinking, OK, well, what are you going to do when an opponent prepares for that in the playoffs? And I don't know exactly what that looks like, you know, maybe it's something as simple as like a two, three zone uh, or some other similar zone variant where like the opponent can make sure it's always going to be a big guy guard near the rim rather than letting a small defend a small in the dunker spot. It's just generally, like if a team is finding a way to turn the Bucks principles against themselves, then, you know, are, are the Bucks going to wait until they're like down to nothing in a series to adapt?
0: Yes, that absolutely. They will. <laughs> no, like, man, we talked about this. Like, at this point, until proven otherwise, we have to assume that's the way they're going to operate. And I don't mean just that, like the the Bucks, but but Like, if you look at his coaching history, it would be foolish for us to assume anything else.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's fair, and that's <laughs> like that's that's sort of the push and the pull with the Bucks in general because right. because I think that macro stuff had a lot of value for the Bucks team that Bud inherited where yes. you know he, he could come in and say, look, this team is clearly talented, but it's not clicking. We're not maximizing the talent here. It's disorganized. So here's how we're going to organize ourselves. Here are the principles we're going to instill. Here's the style we're going to play at both ends. Everyone's going to have a clearly defined role. It's going to be great. And And he completely turned that team around. And I think he deserves a lot of credit for that and probably hasn't gotten quite enough credit for that. Um, or maybe he has. I mean, he won coach of the year. So.
0: Listen, I, and, and but, if you if you recall late last season, even though, you know, my opinion on him in the playoffs and, and whether this team could win a title with him coaching, it had not changed. I was even talking about how he wasn't getting enough coach of the year buzz last year because he had already won it. And be, just because they were doing the same things two years in a row, to me, didn't take away from the fact that he was still doing a hell of a job coaching that team during the regular season and it's a regular season award like i think but is a good nba coach who as you've noted many times with the macro stuff is like great at coming in setting a specific culture getting a structure in getting like a foundation of how we are going to play in and and for the most part maximizing the talent at his disposal during the regular season for most teams for most franchises they will take that because that's big if you like winning 60 games and being a team even if your ceiling was you know like competing to get to the eastern conference finals if you're like that's pretty good for most franchises it's just that when you've got a generational talent like Giannis, and you just like refuse to deviate from that and that's been your calling card throughout your coaching career you're going to get roasted for it i'm not trying to boil a team's everything down to like well they didn't win a championship they're failures like you can you can have good runs and i'm like i'm saying right now there are plenty of franchises who would take those kind of runs who would take two years like bud and the bucks just had the last couple years but when you're in the game the Bucks are in now with Giannis Antetokounmpo in the mix now locked in long term like that cannot be enough. I don't want to be the guy now that's just going to like throw out the Kobeisms because it's near the anniversary of his death. But one of the my favorite things that I saw yesterday when people were sharing a bunch of Kobe stuff was actually um, an Italian interview Kobe had done wearing an AC Milan jersey because he was a Milan fan like I am. But In the interview, the reporter asks him, I don't know, like what's important in sport and in competing, whatever. And Kobe, for some reason, like whispers it, like kind of psychopathically. And in Italian says, winning and championships. That's what's important when you're playing. And he goes off on this tangent about how obviously in life, there are other important things. But when you're a top athlete, that that is the only thing that should matter once you get on your field of play, winning and championships, like nothing else. I think that's like a good reminder here with the Bucs. They're a great team. Giannis is a generational talent. Budenholzer, all things considered, is a really good NBA coach. But when they're in this game now, they got to win at some point, or at least truly show that they can. And I'm still not convinced that they're there.
1: And I don't think anybody's going to be convinced until they see it happen. Like they're in that zone right now where it's like nothing they really do in the regular season is going to convince anybody. And that's just uh, that just kind of comes with the territory, right? When when you've had the best record in the league two years in a row and like haven't even gotten to the finals, that's like there are diminishing returns as far as, you know, the belief that you can engender whether it's in your fan base or just uh, like the NBA watching public in general. I think a lot of people are going to have to see it before they believe it. And that goes for but micro adjustments as a playoff coach. And I think it goes for Giannis as well and his ability to deal with playoff defenses. And quite honestly, like the free throw thing is very concerning. And, and that has been like huge part of the bucks offensive struggles in the last couple of post seasons. And there's no real analysis to be done there. Right. It's like, it's weird that he has gone from being like a mid seventies percentage three uh, free throw shooter to now being like sub 60%. I don't know why or how that's happened, but um, that's something that you know were I a Bucs fan I would really hope to see him start to progress uh, and start to to figure out uh, as the season rolls along
0: okay one very quick thing on the Bucks before we move on because in uh, preparing for this podcast I had mentioned we'll spend about like 12 minutes on each team and we're now 30 minutes in this podcast and we've only talked about one but one thing I did want to mention on the defensive end it still bothers me and I know you have explained and many people have about how it's just like not the way their defense is set up to function and it's not the way Giannis is supposed to function on the defense line based on their defensive principles but it still bothers me that not even like for one or two possessions or a couple of minutes in crunch time they just at no point will think you know what let's abandon what we're doing and, and just put Giannis on player x on the other team like I know a lot of it is that He's a big man that isn't seen as a big man. And so like, you you know, you can point out any great defensive big man, you don't stick him on the opposing team's best wing player. I get it. But at the same time, he's not just a traditional big man. Like he's capable of doing it and probably could do it really well and could get you a stop when you really need it. And I just don't understand why they won't like, we're talking about how the regular season doesn't mean as much to them this year. Do it once or twice in the regular season. See what happens.
1: Yeah. And I think it's, if ever there was a season for them to, to experiment with that, especially like sticking him on opposing wing players. It would be this year, right? Because yeah. Holiday's holiday is a fantastic defender and he can guard up, you know, like you can throw him on LeBron for a few possessions at a time and he's not going to drown because he's insanely strong. And you know, his, his, him being six foot four or whatever he is, is not like a huge limiting factor for him because of his length and his strength and his smarts as a defender. But given that you don't really have anybody who matches up size and strength wise with like the LeBrons and Kawhis of the world, like I don't think Middleton is really suited to those assignments. I do think that is maybe an opportunity to let Giannis have those assignments just for lack of better options almost. Yeah. But the the problem to me just always comes down to, okay, well, like, how are you kind of navigating these ball screen actions? You know, like Fighting through screens is not Giannis's forte. And if he gets wiped out at the point of attack, then, you know, not only is he no longer guarding the player that you decided to stick him on, but now you don't have him available to help at the rim. And that's where it becomes problematic. And I think that is really the root of their resistance to do that. And schematically, like, there are ways around that. I mean, we saw in the finals how the Lakers used Anthony Davis on Jimmy Butler and had him duck way under the level of the screen so that he could essentially stay on Butler without removing himself from the play. But, Also, that was a result of the fact that Jimmy Butler wasn't a huge threat to pull threes off the dribble, where that's not going to be the case with somebody like a Kevin Durant or even LeBron this season with the way that he's shooting the ball.
0: Yep. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's fantasy football podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download The Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Scores YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. Alright, let's let's uh, let's move on to the Clippers. For the Clippers, let's do this. I mean, I, I had a lot of observations and things I wanted to say about the Bucs. I have less for the Clippers, but I know you have a lot of thoughts about the way they've changed their offense a little bit. So for the Clippers, let, let's just have you... Give us those observations, and and like I said, I I just have less to say about them, but I'm very interested to hear what you have to say about the subtle differences you've seen in their offense.
1: Well, they're they're moving the ball a lot more. Like they're they're throwing, I think, something like eighteen or nineteen more passes per game. Um, uh, Paul George, especially, like the, he's the guy that I've noticed it in most. He I think is really focusing on being more of a playmaker, and. Like, he's averaging a career high in assists, but it's more than that, right? It's just, like, his willingness to make the extra pass um, and, like, his pick and roll efficiency has been completely ridiculous. A ton of that has to do with his pull-up shooting, but he's also making just, like, some pinpoint skip passes to the corners. Uh, And I think the Clippers in general have done a better job of hunting out the corners. The biggest reason they've been successful, to be perfectly honest, is just that they've shot the absolute shit out of the ball. Starting with PG. Starting with PG, moving down to Kawhi, Nick Batum has been ridiculous shooting it. kennard has been great shooting it. Beverly has shot the hell out of it. Um, like pretty much everybody on their team has shot threes at a ridiculous level. Um, I haven't checked after their last game. Uh, Kawhi and PG didn't play, so I didn't really care. But going into that game, I think they were close to 43% as a team from three-point range and 52% from the corners. So Unreal. So that's been a huge part of it. And and like, yeah, they're generating great looks uh, with the way that they're moving the ball. And like, I think specifically Kawhi and PG, like, have done a really good job just like manipulating defenses and, and finding those passing angles and seeking out open shooters on the perimeter. But obviously, like that shooting is going to regress. So I'm kind of interested to see if and when that happens. What is their offense going to look like then? Because one thing that's happened as much as I do think like the small tweaks that they've made have been really beneficial is that they've become even more jump shot reliant than they were last year. They're 27th in the league in the proportion of their shot attempts that are coming at the rim. They're 22nd in free throw attempt rate, which is like they were second last year. So that's a huge drop. And them being that jump shot reliant makes me a bit nervous. I mean, if you boil it down, the simple reason they lost to Denver last year is they started clanking everything and they couldn't find other ways to score. You know, Kawhi and PG notoriously didn't get to the free throw line in that game seven. And, uh, and with Harold playing as poorly as he was, like they didn't really have anyone who was applying rim pressure. And now Harrell's obviously gone. And that deficiency is even more stark. So I do think at some point they're going to have to find a way to diversify their methods of scoring, but I've been really impressed just with the the top-down playmaking. And I think it's interesting that, you know, they went into the offseason with what seemed to be a mandate to, like, acquire a point guard because Kawhi didn't seem super thrilled with the playmaking burden that he was being forced to carry. And they didn't get that guy, but they have sort of created, like, an aggregate point guard just by committee where everybody is taking turns sort of running the show. And I think Batum has been a huge addition to that effect. Like his ability it's, to be to be a connector from the top of the floor, and like his unselfishness.
0: It's also um, insane just how well Batum has played, given where his career had gone in the last couple of years.
1: Yeah, it's it's one of the best stories of this season, honestly. Like I think we all pretty much thought that he was washed, and when the Clippers signed him, I was like, okay, like that could be like a useful depth piece, like maybe a ninth, tenth man. But I certainly didn't expect that he was going to be like part of their playoff rotation. And become as invaluable to that team that he as he has become. But I think he's been a big part of of the fact that they're moving the ball better. Because of his ability to serve as a connector. Because they can run their offense through him from the top. And move Kawhi off of the ball. And get him the ball on the move. And get him the ball on the post. Like Kawhi's post-ups are way up this season. He's spending way more time on the block. And I think that's been... Really beneficial for him and beneficial for the Clippers' offense as a whole. So I've been interested in them. Uh, I'm interested to keep watching them and see, you know, how much of this stuff can really sustain itself and and whether that's going to allow them to have more playoff success than they had last year.
0: I mean, they lost to Atlanta their last game, but they didn't have Kawhi and PG. But they've when their guys are in the lineup, they look really good. They look even better than last season for the most part. Those guys have been more available than they were last year, and I've never argued that the talent is not there for them to compete with the Lakers. I still think the Lakers are a little little better built, especially this season, but if Kawhi and PG are both playing up to their full capabilities, you'd have to be foolish to argue that this team doesn't have a chance to beat the Lakers. A Western Conference team that has zero chance to beat the Lakers or the Clippers, or honestly a lot of teams right now, is the New Orleans Pelicans, who have been, now that the Nuggets have figured it out, I think we can pretty safely say this has been the most disappointing team in the Western Conference, you wrote about their defense last week. It was a really good piece. I'm going to let you riff on that. But before we do, I did want to riff on their offense a little bit and not even their offense, but more so just their math problem in general. This is something I've been tweeting about for a couple of weeks because it started as something where I was like, okay, this can't possibly continue over the course of the season. And now two weeks later, the numbers are actually getting worse somehow. But, you know, a lot of times we talk about when an NBA team or a basketball team in general has a math problem and the discrepancy in threes. To put it in perspective, like last year, The Spurs had the largest discrepancy between three-point attempts and three-point attempts given up per game, okay? That discrepancy was minus 6.6, and that was the worst in the league. The Pelicans have a minus 6 discrepancy in makes per game, let alone attempts. The attempt discrepancy is minus 12. I spent way too much time yesterday going through every single season of the three-point era summaries on basketball reference, and I could not find one. So I, I, I'd i probably have to check it again because it's pretty hard to uh, go through those kind of numbers and not make at least one mistake, but I'm pretty confident that right now the Pelicans have the largest three-point attempt and three-point make discrepancy in NBA history. It's bad. They are starting every game at a disadvantage because of it. Usually when a team gives up as many threes as the pelicans do you'll often find that on the other end they're also one of the teams that takes a lot of threes right like again i went through all the years of three-point era and what i found is most of the times the team that gives up the most threes you look at their rank and three-point attempts themselves fourth second sixth, ninth first seventh second tenth like that's what you'll find the last time the team that gave up the most threes per game was also bottom three in attempts was the 92 93 jazz who finished 26 out of 27 teams at the time in attempts and and gave up the most on the other end but teams were
1: also shooting so few threes back then that i feel like the disparity probably wasn't nearly as you know what the disparity
0: was for that team it was like minus three point something in attempts makes was probably like minus one point something the pelicans have a minus six discrepancy in makes man in three point makes that's absurd Should that somewhat correct itself over the course of the year? You'd think, but the attempt issue is, is a legitimate issue. You know, when we did that podcast, uh, I think it was Christmas Eve, we did it or the day before when after every team had played one game and we just came up with observations and my one observation from watching what at the time was a Pelicans win over the Raptors was that they're going to need to find... M- way more minutes to have JJ Redick in place of one of Lonzo Ball or Eric Bledsoe with the starting lineup because there was just no spacing around Brandon Ingram and Zion Williamson with all of Bledsoe Ball and Stephen Adams on the court. They didn't create enough from the perimeter. And look, JJ Redick has not shot the ball anywhere near like what we're used to from JJ Redick, but he's obviously still a great floor spacer because teams respect him. I don't know what the answer. I don't know if it's just getting Redick more minutes. I don't know if it's completely overhauling their offensive system. But even. Like that wouldn't make a ton of sense because it's not like we're talking about some archaic coach. like Stan Van Gundy, if anything, was kind of ahead of the curve when he coached in Orlando. You know, you can say what you will about well, it's hard because Zion's not exactly a shooter doesn't have range. Stan Van Gundy created a very futuristic offense around Dwight Howard, who did not have range and was ju- it was like this four out one in offense where they surrounded him with shooters and got up a ton of shots. It's not like it can't be done around a guy who can't shoot. And his co-star in Brandon Ingram can shoot and has range. So yeah, I don't know how they're going to go about addressing this, but you can maybe give us your thoughts on the defensive end, which you already wrote about, and the shots are giving up on that. But on the offensive end, whether it's getting Redick in the lineup, making a move, I don't know. But they need to get more threes up, especially if they're going to give this many up on the other end. I'm super heated about it and passionate about it, but it's because... (laughs) As you can tell, it just like boggles my mind that an NBA team in 2021 can be more than a month into the season and still at a point where they are giving up 12 more three-point attempts than they take.
1: Yeah, like (laughs) just losing every game by 18 points from beyond the arc is a a really difficult math (laughs) disadvantage to to patch over, even though you have, you know, maybe the best at-rim scorer in the league in, in Zion. The the offense and the defense are connected because in a way, like the construction of this team was designed to like sacrifice offense for defense, right? You look at their starting lineup and we even talked about it before the season started. We talked about it after the first couple of games. It's like, okay, is this really going to work? Is this going to be tenable to have Bledsoe, Lonzo, Zion, and Steven Adams all in the starting lineup when you have, you know, two non-shooters in Zion and Adams and two pretty shaky shooters in Lonzo and Bledsoe. And I think that's pretty much borne out, right? Like they, they have had a hard time scoring or at least a much harder time scoring than they ought to given how offensively gifted Zion and Ingram are. That wouldn't be such an issue if they weren't also a complete mess at the other end of the floor, right? Like if that setup had had its desired effect where they were so strong, defensively, then then the offensive issues would, I don't know if they'd fall by the wayside, but I think they would be a lot less concerning, right? But the fact is, look, the, their defense got off to this really encouraging start. They were four and two after their first six games. They were fourth in the league in defensive rating. And since then, they're one and eight, and they are 29th in defensive efficiency ahead of only the Kings, who are Statistically, the worst defense in history by a mile. And, you know, the things that were working for them early on have just sort of fallen apart. And part of it is shooting variance. Like those first six games, their opponents were shooting 35% from three. The last nine, I think it's up to like 42%, which given how many threes they're giving up, uh, makes a huge difference. It's not just that. Like they're just suffering breakdowns at pretty much every level of the defense. And, you know, we talked... And even the Pelicans had had talked about this. Like, Stan Van Gundy kind of came in and and, and made this uh, connection himself. But, like, their scheme was compared to the Bucks scheme in that they were really prioritizing protecting the rim and giving up a ton of threes as a result. But in terms of function, I guess it's similar. But in terms of form, it's actually quite different. Like, they're not playing a deep drop really as their base scheme. Like they're actually pretty aggressive at the point of attack and the point of the screen. And and it's probably more similar actually to like what the Raptors ran last year where protecting the paint is still the number one goal and you're giving up a ton of threes, but you're doing that more by like pulling guys in early from the wing, putting yourself in rotation, like collapsing at the rim, helping aggressively and then helping the helper. But the and, Pelicans. And it
0: helped to have, you know, Pascal Siakam and OG Ananobi being the guys jumping out at shooters as well. Right. And that's the thing, that right?
1: Like, like the Pelicans don't really have the personnel to pull that off. And Zion in particular has just been a total disaster in that scheme. And maybe he'd be a disaster in any scheme at this point, but he's really having a hard time with just the basic fundamentals of help rotations, uh, closeouts. Angling his body, you know, so that he can steer drivers a particular way rather than just letting them get whatever they want. His defensive rebounding has been disastrous. Like, it's a big problem right now. And when you have that big a minus, I think, at the heart of your roster, it makes everything else a little bit more difficult. And I I do wonder if just sort of simplifying their scheme a little bit might be beneficial. What they're doing now is obviously not working anymore. And it's not just Zion, right? Like everyone on that defense has contributed in some way to their fall off. Like even Bledsoe, who I think has been quite good on the whole defensively. He's been way more mistake prone at that end than I think he's been in recent seasons. Um, Ingram, to me, has gotten a lot more alert as a help defender. Like he still, he he makes way more plays uh, from the weak side than he was making before. But he still makes plenty of mistakes as well. And Adams like, has been really important for them, uh, especially as a rebounder, but also just as kind of, like, an anchor in the middle who's very positionally sound and really good at deterring shots at the rim. He's not very good at actually preventing those shots from going in the net when he's the last line of defense. Like, he doesn't have very good timing on his shot contests, and because he's pretty slow and pretty earthbound, he can't make up for that with, like, late contests. So... The Pels are allowing teams to shoot like 70% at the rim, uh, which last I checked was tied with Denver for worst in the league. <laughs> so uh, there, there are a lot of different issues with this team defensively. And, and the fact that like, they're kind of still starting this lineup that seems oriented toward the defensive end of the floor and they're still so porous at that end uh, is a real problem.
0: Yeah. If you're going to start that lineup and sacrifice in the offensive end, then it better get the job done on the defensive end. And it's clearly not, as you just detailed. I am glad you mentioned Denver though, because someone on Twitter yesterday tweeted that, you know, from last year to this year, Michael Porter Jr. has now come further along on the defensive end than Zion Williamson has. <laughs> and whether they were joking or not, it's not a joke. That's not a, like, that. that's a fact. I don't even think it's particularly close. No, it's not. And And there's really no excuse there. Like, Michael Porter Jr. has missed a lot of time due to injuries, too. He's only played 62 NBA games. Like, has he been around the NBA game a year longer? Sure. But in terms of actual on court experience, there's not that much of a difference. And while Michael Porter Jr. is obviously a physically gifted guy, he is nowhere near as physically gifted as Zion Williamson is. So there is really no excuse for that. I mentioned it, you know, a few weeks ago that, you know, inexperience can be an excuse for a lack of basketball IQ and defensive IQ. It could not be an excuse for defensive effort. And Zion has not shown enough of it. Just full stop. That's an issue. And, and that's, that's, that's the
1: problem with like, there have been a lot of calls to just play Zion at the five, because I think, people, I think people rightly think that that would open things up for their offense and make scoring a lot easier. But if, if you think their defense is bad now, I mean, just look at the numbers when Steven Adams isn't on the floor like it, they're they're allowing like 118 points per 100 and when Zion plays the 5 their defensive rebound rate is 63% which is a complete disaster and defensive rebounding is like one of the only things their defense is still doing well right now like they're still I think tops in the league in defensive rebound rate so yeah they would maybe gain something at the offensive end by by moving Zion to the 5 but like just like we've seen the limitations of having Zion kind of be that last line of defense. Like he is not up for it at this point in time. And that leaves them, I think, without without a ton of really good options. I do feel like, I don't know if Redick would be the guy that I would bump into the starting lineup because he's been really bad. Um, you mentioned that he hasn't actually shot the ball that well and obviously defensively. He hasn't been good for a while, but uh, particularly at this point in his career, like he just can't get through screens at all. Like I think that would exacerbate a lot of issues. But maybe Josh Hart, you know, moving him into the lineup as like a, a wing who doesn't really need the ball, who can space the floor to an adequate degree, and isn't going to take anything off the table defensively, and then you bump you know one of Bledsoe or Alonzo to the bench. I feel like that might help.
0: They should at least try it. Like, what do they got to lose here?
1: Yeah, I mean not.
0: Not, not a whole a hell of a lot.
1: They've already been doing quite a bit of losing. So Yeah.
0: Exactly. A team that should do a little less losing going forward is the Brooklyn Nets. We haven't really spoken too much about them since you know we did the episode dedicated to the Harden trade. So before we go, let's let's talk about our first impressions of this Nets team. At least the first few games, Harden was really deferring, it seemed. Kyrie Irving since his return is definitely not deferring. You know, I'd still like KD to take the reins a little bit more, but also as we've discussed, he's also the best overall out of the three and is still the most impactful without actually needing to completely dominate the ball or even needing to completely dominate on the offensive end when he's got those two guys beside him because he is their, you know, by far the best defensive player of the three. In terms of their defensive struggles, they're going to have them, but I still think they're capable enough. All three of them are capable enough that when... They need to, in big games or in the playoffs, they'll do just barely enough on that end to win, giving the overwhelming star talent, shot creation, offensive talent in general they have. The defense is what I expected it to be. And yeah, it's, it's worrisome. I guess if you're really, really thinking big picture, like, can they beat one of the LA teams? But I still think in terms of getting out of the East, they just have too much talent and shot creation for me to think this defense is going to sink them. Because I think you've seen it in small stretches here and there in crunch time where like those guys just get up enough and do enough defensively that it shouldn't matter, at least in the East playoffs.
1: Well, I just kind of think that they're eventually going to poach another big man, you know? Well, there's the
0: already back. talk today that Andre Drummond might uh, be a target from them after a potential buyout.
1: Yeah, so I mean, whether it's Drummond or, you know, I don't know, throw any other big man. I know uh, one of the fans of our show was was throwing Gorky Jang's name out there somebody who would be a good fit like some competent big Which man fan? is going to get a shout out. Uh it was uh a teak nice. beyond saw. Yeah. Right.
0: He's already um, gotten a shout out from us.
1: And I think Jang would be a good fit like there I, there are any number I think of, of competent big men who could wind out on the buyout market and find themselves in Brooklyn. And I think that is going to help their their lack of rim protection and their lack of rebounding and and until that happens those things are going to be issues. Agree. I don't think it's going to be you know, enough of an issue to sink them. I still have them as, as the favorite in the East, but I think it's going to take some time for them to sort all of this stuff out. Um, you mentioned Harden really deferring in his first few games. I do think ultimately, you know, KD is the guy who's going to wind up sacrificing on ball touches just because he is by far the best off ball player of those three guys. And as long as he's fine doing that, I think, you know, the Nets offense should be really, really healthy. What stands out to me is just like everyone wants to talk about the the only one ball thing and how, you know, they're sort of diminishing returns because as good as these three guys are as isolation scorers, well, only one of them can have the ball in his hands at one time, but I don't know if it's underrated. I feel like a lot of smart people definitely recognize this and have pointed it out, but like there, there are such good shooters that... They're just constantly going to be engaging help defenders, even when they don't have the ball. And even Harden, who I don't think has been doing all that much moving without the ball since he arrived in Brooklyn, like he looks more or less like the same type of off ball player to me. You're still pulling a defender with you more or less wherever you go. The Nets, I think, have done a good job of running second side actions so it's not getting too stagnant when one of them is ISOing or running pick and roll on the other side of the floor. Like they're just constantly going to be drawing attention and and engaging help defenders. And that is just going to make them incredibly difficult to stop. And like you throw Joe Harris into that mix, who is like one of the best in the league at engaging weak side defenders with, you know, the way that he rockets off of pin downs, the gravity that he has, how incredible he's been as a spot up shooter. And I just think end of the day, I, I do think this is the best offense in the league. I've said that before. I continue to think that. And I honestly think the defense on the whole hasn't been that bad. Again, the rim protection is an issue. Bam absolutely cooked them in the two-game set that they played against Miami. Uh, But like, there's no shame in that. Bam is cooking everybody right now. Uh, I do think like my biggest concern might just be their lack of depth because Harden's averaging over 40 minutes a game since the trade. Durant's over 36 minutes as a 32-year-old fresh off an Achilles injury. And this early in the regular season, I don't know. That's a bit of a troubling sign to me.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting because after their first game and after their, you know, first couple of weeks, one of the things that we talked about was that they had so much depth. And even shot creation and overall talent around the big 2 of KD and Kyrie that like Nash could roll out lineups at all points of a game where they had enough talent and creation out there. And now suddenly they've got this big 3, but that's no longer the case. And and yeah, that is an issue given the age of these guys and if if one of those guys is out They should still be okay offensively, but, you know, talk about, like, having the overwhelming talent advantage to squeak out games when they need to in crunch time and in the playoffs. You take one of those three guys out, and suddenly it's a lot more ordinary.
1: I mean, you saw, like, they they took Durant out (laughs) that (laughs) game against Cleveland, and they kind of lost pretty comfortably. Yeah.
0: Whether it's Nets-related or somewhere around the league, you got anything else to say before we bid adieu for another week?
1: um i'll just mention it uh because i think it deserves mention and again we're over an hour here so i i I don't want to say too much and we'll save it i guess for another episode but the jazz are playing great right now uh their offense looks incredibly crisp to me like they're just executing so well and with such precision and i've been really heartened to see how well mike conley has been playing because he looked very lost at sea last season in his first season in utah and uh it's just been night and day from that season to this one and i think that's been a a huge part of why they've been successful because mitchell has been you know sporadically great but uh has more or less been the same guy that he was last year i think and you know gobert has basically been the same guy he was last year bogdanovich has actually struggled quite a bit um, but but having Conley play like Conley again has really made that team, I think, make a lot of sense. And shouts to Jordan Clarkson, who's been unbelievable off the bench and who I think if I was picking now, would probably be my sixth man of the year pick.
0: Clarkson's arrival there last year, just it, it seemed like the perfect marriage of player and team and fit and need, and it's worked out well for both. But yeah, Mike Conley being Mike Conley again has been one of the best stories, most positive stories of the first month of the season. And it's also been a big reason why the Jazz look like a legit contender right now. We'll see what happens over the course of the year. But I think we can talk Jazz maybe next episode. Uh, I want to talk Jazz and I want to talk Hawks as well. So maybe we can do that on the next episode. Sounds great. One note I did want to mention, because I thought of you when I read it, but Matt Moore (laughs) tweeted yesterday that Joel Embiid actually turning the ball over more frequently when double-teamed this season as opposed to last season? I don't know if you remember a couple of weeks ago we were talking about that.
1: Uh, yeah, I just – I need a little bit more context <laughs> for that. Like that's – I mean I'm not saying that it's not true, but from my eyeball test, I, I just feel like he's actually handled those double-teams quite a bit better Um and – I don't know. I guess, like, sure, maybe he's he's turning the ball over more so on those doubles than he was in the past, but I also think that he's making more productive passes out of those doubles than he was in the past, so there's always a a trade-off there, and I think it's not even just about, like, how are you dealing with a hard double team? It's like, how quickly are you getting the ball out of your hands, and, like, are you beating the rotation, like, before the double team even arrives? You know, are you sensing where it's coming from and making the right pass and are you making it early so that the rotation doesn't have time to catch up and that's something that like I've noticed Embiid doing a much better job of this year so not debating the stat itself but I just think context is always important with stuff like that
0: all right with that I think we're done for the week I do want to give this week's fan shout out to Timo Cruz not sure where he listens from or how long he's been a listener, but I do know that he frequently comments on the Squares YouTube channel, and uh, his comments sometimes are related to Pound the Rock, and he'll mention hearing something on Pound the Rock, or something Cash and Wolf saying on Pound the Rock, so I did want to give Timo Cruz a shout out, and let him know that those comments have not gone unnoticed, so reminder to all of our listeners that you can reach out to us on social media, Let us know what you think of the show. Give us your feedback. Let us know how long you've been listening, where you're listening from, and we will get you a shout-out on a future episode. And hey, if anyone out there uh, listening who wants a shout-out, also wants to drop me a note about how I can get uh, my camera on Google Hangouts to work, that would also be uh, much appreciated because uh, we're having technical issues trying to get this podcast off the ground today. It says I have granted Google Hangouts permission to use my camera. I'm seeing myself on the camera, but Wolfon can't see me. So
1: please help me see Cash. It's (laughs) it's been too long since I've seen his face.
0: All right. For Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the Rock.